0: Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. It's kind of a big Sunday for us. We're coming to the conclusion of our study in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, for those of you who haven't been with us, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for about two years now. Uh, We've taken breaks at different times, uh, but it's taken us about two years to walk through the entire gospel narrative. and So uh, we're going to begin this morning uh, in verse 9. We'll read through to verse 20 and uh, conclude our series. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, you'll find a Bible in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you, and it's on page 853 and 854, our passage for this morning, okay? So if you don't have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along. Mark chapter 16, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 9. they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for this time that we have together. We pray, Father, that you would be with us by your spirit, that you would help us, you would give us understanding and insight and wisdom into your word. Lord, we pray that what we hear with our ears and understand with our minds, that, Lord, you would press deep into our hearts, that we would be changed and transformed for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start this morning a little different than we normally do. I want you to take notice of a note that's probably in most of your Bibles. It should be. You'll notice in your Bibles, if you look there, that verses 9 through 20 are in brackets. Or maybe there's a footnote. And then if you go down to the bottom of the page, it reads something like this. This is the way my translation reads. Some ancient manuscripts of Mark's Gospel contain these verses, and others... Do not. Well, what does that mean? I want us to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning this morning of our uh, message to answer that question. And really, this provides us with an opportunity to talk about the transmission, the preservation, and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Maybe you've wondered before how did we get our Bibles? Even as we've been going through this series in the Gospel of Mark, where did we get this text of Mark? Well, I want us to explore that a little bit because it's important for us to arrive at a conclusion about how we have received this document that now sits in our hands. I believe once you understand the process, it will further strengthen your trust in the accuracy of the biblical text. We should begin by saying there are no original documents or original copies of the 27 books of the New Testament. They no longer exist. Rather, what we do possess are ancient manuscripts or copies of the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek, and we possess some 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts that were written between the early 2nd century and 16th century. In addition to that, not only do we uh, possess these Greek manuscripts, but early on the New Testament was translated into other languages such as Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, which is not a southern dialect, I'll point out, Gothic, and Arabic. Now, if you conclude these translations of the New Testament, then we, the ancient manuscripts we possess number somewhere between twenty and 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, this is quite remarkable, especially when you compare the textual evidence for the New Testament to other ancient writings. For the average Greek or Latin work, ancient Greek or Latin work, we possess fewer than 20 manuscripts. So the New Testament boasts well over a thousand times as many manuscripts as the average ancient Greek or Latin work. 20 compared to 20,000 or 25,000. No work in ancient literature even comes close to the New Testament in terms of the volume of ancient manuscripts. There is nothing like it. In addition, we should also point out that other ancient works do not compare to the New Testament in terms of the time that lapsed between when the original document was written and those manuscripts that we possess. So, for example, the oldest New Testament manuscripts we possess, about 10 to 15 of them, were written within 100 years of the completion of the New Testament. The earliest one is a part of the Gospel of John. It dates to around 135 A.D. Now, that is very early, considering that John himself was living into the 90s. Now, this is remarkable because for the average ancient Greek or Latin work, the earliest manuscripts that we possess were written more than 500 years after the original. Again, no comparison. So, the Bible, within 100 years, we have manuscripts. Uh, that reflect the original. The other ancient Greek Latin works, on average, they are written more than 500 years after the original. Let me give you just one concrete example that may help you uh, give some clarity on this or or help you grasp this a little better. So, most of us uh, have probably heard of the Iliad. It was written by Homer And many of us were supposed to read the Iliad in high school. Whether we did or not, maybe another question, but we were supposed to. Now, next to the New Testament, there are more ancient manuscripts of Homer's Iliad than any other piece of ancient literature. So naturally, we would say, well, how many? How many ancient manuscripts of the Iliad do we have? 643. That's the best. Next to the New Testament, that's the most manuscripts we have of other ancient. Greek and Latin literature. But the New Testament we have 25,000. Then when we consider the date that lapsed between when the original document was written and the manuscripts we possess, the Iliad was written in the 18th century, or, or I'm sorry, in the 8th century BC, and the earliest manuscripts are from the 13th century AD. So we're talking about a lapse of time of some two thousand years between the earliest manuscripts that we possess and the autographed copy of the Iliad. The Bible, on the other hand, the manuscripts, their earliest manuscripts, were written within a hundred years of the completion of the New Testament. You see the overwhelming evidence for the content of the New Testament. And the reason why it's so important that we possess all these ancient manuscripts of the New Testament is because it uh, results in a greater degree of accuracy in terms of the documents that we have today, the translations that we have today. There are textual scholars, I am by no means one, but there are textual scholars who by analyzing and comparing all these uh, ancient documents are able to produce the original document with remarkable accuracy. With so much evidence, with so much manuscript evidence, it is easier to point out when something is out of place. A letter may be wrong, or a word is misplaced, or perhaps a verse is inserted. These are referred to as textual variants. They vary from the original text. And where there is a real question regarding a textual variant, you'll notice a footnote in your Bible. If you follow the note to the bottom of the page, it'll read something like, some manuscripts say this, or other manuscripts say this, and you can compare the differences for yourself. What you will find in comparing those differences is that the overwhelming majority of variants do not change the meaning of the text. And there is no variant that alters any major Christian doctrine. We can be confident, my friends, that the Bible we hold in our hands is, in fact, the accurate record of what the biblical authors wrote themselves. A widely respected and accomplished biblical scholar has written the following statement, quote, The vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with more than 99.9% accuracy, end of quote. And so we can have great confidence that the words we have in our Bibles are the words of the original authors of Scripture. And when you examine the evidence, it really is remarkable to see how God has so faithfully preserved and protected His Word. Now, almost all the textual variants that are noted in your Bible involve a word here or a word there. In the entire New Testament, though, there are two large textual variants in terms of uh, content material. A lot of material. The one is here, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, and then the other one is in John 7 and John 8, and your Bible notes that as well if you were to look at that passage. Here in Mark, based on textual evidence, some scholars believe that these verses were not original to Mark himself. The belief is that the gospel of Mark ended at chapter 16, verse 8. Um... But some uh, would say, some, this is, this is the theory, that there were some in the past who were reading Mark's gospel, read through to chapter 16, verse 8, and they determined that the ending was too abrupt. Mark didn't bring things to a conclusion. He didn't wrap things up. And so the idea is that then some borrowed material from other sources and composed a lengthier conclusion and added that to the gospel of Mark. Now, the evidence is unclear. Some would argue that Mark penned these words. Others would say that it's a later edition. So translators have included the material, but with a textual note. Now, what's my opinion on the matter? Uh, I don't know. Um, Again, I'm not a textual scholar. I don't know for sure. But if I had to say, reading the evidence and reading the different commentaries and so forth, I believe that it's a later edition. Having said that, I want us to see that along with the other textual variants we find in the New Testament, including this one, which is one of the largest, no major Christian doctrine or truth is altered or changed. In fact, I believe what we'll see very clearly this morning as we walk through these verses, is that what is contained here is altogether consistent with the testimony of the rest of Scripture. So I want us to turn now to our text, and I want us to consider two points from our passage, okay? First, we'll consider the grace of Jesus. And then secondly, we will consider the mission of Jesus. So first, the grace of Jesus. And secondly, the mission of Jesus. First of all, the grace of Jesus is found in verses 9 through 14. And as we walk through these verses, one of the things I'm going to do is I will make references repeatedly to other passages of Scripture that affirm what's stated here, so that you can see how what's uh, here is consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. So, In verses 9 through 14, we see in these verses that three of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are recorded. And each one of these post-resurrection appearances is followed by a reference to the disciples' unbelief. So notice the appearances first. In verse 9, this is the first appearance mentioned. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. We find that in all the other gospel accounts, in Matthew and Luke and John, Mary Magdalene is one of the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Then the second resurrection appearance is in verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And here we read from the gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 24. More than likely, the reference here is to Luke 24 where Jesus appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Then in verse 14 we read, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And all the other gospel accounts record that Jesus made appearances to the eleven. Now notice not only Jesus' post-resurrection appearances in our text, but also notice the disciples' unbelief. Each post-resurrection appearance is followed by a reference to their unbelief. Look at verse 9. We're told that he appears to Mary Magdalene. Then in verses 10 and 11, she went out and told those who had been with them as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Here, not only do we see, this is the first reference to the disciples' unbelief here, but not only do we see their unbelief, but I think we we capture a glimpse and insight into their unbelief. We are told here that they were mourning and weeping. In other words, they were deeply disappointed and devastated. Consider what has just happened. Jesus had made these promises. They had believed that He was Messiah. He had been crucified now and buried. And they thought that all was lost. They were deeply, deeply disappointed and overwhelmed with sorrow. It's not hard for us to imagine how their sorrow then related to their doubts and their unbelief. Many of us know this by experience, right? Perhaps something has taken place in our lives, perhaps something that we've experienced and we are so overwhelmed with sorrow and so overwhelmed with disappointment that we find it very difficult to see through the disillusionment and to believe and trust in the promises of God. And the disciples here, we can imagine them saying, oh, these, these testimonies of Jesus being raised, it's too good to be true. I've tried believing that before. And it didn't work out. Why would I do it again only to be disappointed? Disappointment, discouragement, sorrow can oftentimes lead to unbelief. Look there in verse 12 and we read that He appeared. This is the second appearance mentioned. He appeared to the two disciples and then we read right after that in verse 13. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And then finally in verse 14, we read of the third appearance. He appeared to the eleven themselves. And then right after that we read, He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. So three references to Jesus' post-resurrection appearances and three references to the disciples' unbelief. The thing that's worth noting here is that The disciples struggled to believe this. They struggled to believe the resurrection. You know, there is a theory that the disciples in the first century Christians believed the resurrection because they were Neanderthals, right? They were superstitious. They were unscientific. They weren't sophisticated like we are today. I mean, heck, they'd believe anything, right? But no, that's not what we see in the gospel accounts. The disciples weren't used to seeing dead people being raised from the dead. And they had a hard time believing it. In fact, Jesus had told them over and over again, I'm going to die, I'll be crucified, and I will be raised. But they just filed it away, right, as some silly idea. Something that Jesus maybe had talked about or theorized about, but surely nothing that would ever come true. And even after it happened, they had to be convinced and persuaded. Given our own struggles with doubt and unbelief, I think it's worth noting as well how Jesus responds to those who wrestle with doubt. You see it there in verse 14. First, He rebukes them, right? I think it's worth noting that it is a rebuke that is full of grace. Jesus is not in His rebuke of the disciples. He is not a raging fundamentalist. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, what's wrong with you, you idiots? I'm done with you. I mean, I've told you this over and over again that it was going to happen. Now it's happening. You have appearances, you have witnesses coming to tell you that this is the case. On the other hand, Jesus is not a postmodern. Jesus does not say, well, it doesn't really matter in the end. I know you've really been bummed out about all this, and it's kind of hard to believe, I have to say myself. And the most important thing is that you just try to be a good person. Don't worry about all this resurrection stuff, whether it's true or whether it's not. No, Jesus says it matters. And that they have had adequate justification to believe, and now they have a responsibility to believe. Jesus responds to doubters, we see here, with strength, but also with compassion, with truth, and with grace. He responds with firmness, but also with gentleness. And notice the grace that Jesus extends. You see it there in verse 15. In verse 14, to give you context for this, in verse 14, He rebukes them for their unbelief, for their hardness of heart. And then in verse 15, it doesn't seem to follow. In verse 15, we read, And He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So so the the disciples are wrestling with doubt. They're they're guilty of hardness of heart. Jesus rebukes them for them. You might expect at this point for Jesus to stomp out of the room, to tell them to come back when they've got their act straightened up. But instead he turns to them and he entrusts these doubters who are hard of heart with the mission of the gospel. Go. Now go into all the world and proclaim what you have heard And what you have seen. This is the grace of Jesus. And the grace of Jesus has the power to take doubters. And transform them into bold proclaimers of the gospel truth. My friends he can do that for you even this morning. The second thing I want us to see this morning in our text is the mission of Jesus. So we see the grace of Jesus. And then secondly we see the mission of Jesus. Notice this in verses 15 through 20. So Jesus states his mission very clearly there in verse 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is the Great Commission, right? It's also recorded for us in Matthew 28, in Luke 24, and also in John chapter 20. And we see here that this good news from the mission that Jesus gives his disciples, we see that this good news has universal implications. Through his disciples, Jesus now is intending to extend a universal invitation for all peoples to respond to the good news of salvation. The gospel is to be proclaimed on every continent and in every country and city and town. It is to be spoken of in every village and home and hut and cave. It is to be written in every language and it is to be herald among all peoples. This is the mission that Jesus gave to His disciples, and by extension, the mission that He has given to us, His church. This is what has led us, as we were talking about earlier in the service, John prayed for the um, Snyders. This is what has led us to partner with the Snyders as they minister in Madagascar to reach the Antondrui people, a people who have very little to no access to the gospel. It is this mission that compels us to take the gospel where Christ is not known and where Christ is not treasured. These are our marching orders given to us by the resurrected and reigning Christ. Jesus tells us as well that one of the reasons why it's so important for us to proclaim and share this message with all peoples is because this good news has eternal consequences. You see it there in verse 16. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so one's response to this good news will determine their eternal destiny. Either they believe and are eternally saved, or reject this good news and are eternally condemned. This led Charles Haddon Spurgeon to make the statement that, quote, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. End of quote. In other words, you cannot truly know and you cannot truly treasure this message and not have a desire to share it. To be a disciple of Jesus is synonymous with being sent out by Jesus, thrust forward with this gospel to see it go to all creation. Now, as we think about the mission of Jesus, no doubt verses 17 to 20 are the most controversial verses in our passage. Uh, and some people, you might know, that some people appeal to these verses to justify some downright weird practices. Um, I promise you we're not going to bring out the snakes right now so that we can handle snakes, but there is a small group of churches, very small group, particularly located in the foothills of Tennessee and Kentucky, who see in this passage, no offense if you're from Tennessee or Kentucky, I didn't mean it that way, um, but who see in this passage a mandate to handle poisonous snakes. So they catch them and hold them and dance with them and let them crawl all over their body. And you've probably seen this on TV before. And the idea is that if you have enough faith, then the snakes won't bite you. And if the snakes do bite you, if you have enough faith, you won't die. Well, let me just say that's not what this passage is teaching. And I think you'll see that as we walk through the text. The passage says nothing of the sort. And what it does teach is actually consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. In fact, the predictions that Jesus gives here are fulfilled in the book of Acts. Let's walk through each one and I'll show you this. In verse 17, Jesus says, they will cast out demons. Those who are taking this message, proclaiming this message, believing this message, they will cast out demons. Well, in Acts chapter 5, verse 16, we read that God was moving in the church in Jerusalem in such a way that many were freed from demonic and unclean spirits. In verse 17, we see that they will speak in tongues, And in Acts chapter 2, we see there that all these people are gathered from all over the Roman Empire into Jerusalem. And Peter uh, stands and preaches the gospel and God's Spirit moves upon the church in such a way that they are enabled to speak in the languages of the people who are gathered there. So that they are able to clearly and effectively communicate the gospel to them. In verse 18 we see that Jesus says they will pick up serpents with their hands and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. Now I take these two as one. The big idea here is that God will protect his disciples, those who are proclaiming his gospel, and at times he will protect them in such a way that they would be immune from deadly venom and poison. In fact, Jesus stated this in another passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 19. He said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now this may seem kind of odd, but then we turn to Acts chapter 28. And Paul and his companions are on the island of Malta. And Paul, in the midst of his ministry there, is bitten by a viper. The natives are waiting for Paul to die, but then he is miraculously healed by God, which opens a door for further gospel ministry. It should be noted that Paul was going about the regular duties of his life in ministry. He was not purposefully seeking snakes out or rolling with them on the ground, right? He was actually, the text tells us, gathering wood together to build a fire. He's bitten by a snake God miraculously heals him and uses that as an opportunity to demonstrate his power and to further the gospel. Then in verse 18, Jesus says they will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. There are many examples of this in the book of Acts. One that I was just reading this last week is found in Acts chapter 3 where Peter goes into the temple and he uh, he finds the lame beggar there. And Peter says to the man, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he did. The lame man was healed and he walked. And so you see how each one of these prophecies, these predictions by Jesus, we see them fulfilled in the book of Acts. And notice there in the text as well, the purpose for each one of these miraculous signs and wonders. In verse 20 We read, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So here's the purpose of these miraculous signs and deeds. The purpose is to confirm the message. The purpose is to confirm the gospel message, that this message is true, that this message is coming with the um, stamp and approval and power of God. The purpose is not to test God. The purpose is not to raise money. The purpose is not for entertainment. The purpose is to serve and confirm the message. Now, naturally, we would ask, well, should we expect a similar experience today? Does God, or can God, work in this way today? Does He work in this way today? Well, we know that God can do this today, and I trust that He might choose to do so. We have to acknowledge that just because we don't experience much of this in the West today, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, especially among those who have never heard the gospel, especially among those who have no scriptures in their language. We could imagine a scenario in which a missionary is working among an unreached people group and perhaps they revere and worship snakes. And God's sovereignty, a loved one in that community, is bitten by a snake, is in danger of dying. And God, through the prayer of His missionaries, of His people, God works and that individual is miraculously healed and restored to health. We could see how God would use such a miraculous act to confirm the message that is being preached among those people as a demonstration of His power and to result in others coming to faith in Christ. Again, it is never intended to be a sideshow. It's not for the purpose of entertainment. It's surely not for self-exaltation. But rather, as recorded here, is to confirm and to serve the message of the gospel. I hope you see this morning as we've walked through these verses that everything recorded here in Mark chapter 16 verses 9 to 20 is consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. And that really shouldn't be a surprise to us because if we look at these verses here and we ask, well, what are these verses about? What, are they, what do they revolve around? What's the center of these verses? And really, it's the gospel, the message of the gospel. That's what this passage is about. And the message of the gospel is the message of the Bible. The good news that Jesus came to die for sinners so that through faith and trust in Him we might be saved from the guilt And the power and the penalty of our sin. So that we might be free to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. It is this gospel that we see in our passage this morning. It is this gospel that for a time the disciples struggled to believe. But then they came to love and embrace. It's this gospel we see in our passage that then Jesus commissioned His disciples to go and to proclaim. And it is this gospel that then Jesus promised to confirm with signs and wonders. It's this gospel we find in verse 15 and this message that is spoken of in verse 20 that's so central to our text here, that's so central to the gospel of Mark and is so central to the larger story of the Bible. It's this message that reveals to us who God is, who Jesus is, and how we can know God through Jesus. This is a good place for us to end our study in the Gospel of Mark. We see here from our passage that we have been entrusted with this good news. It's been preserved for us in Scripture. And now we have been commissioned to proclaim it to all creation. By God's grace, may we be faithful to do so.